0: uhuru uhuru and welcome you're listening to the reparations in action podcast and fm radio show which is broadcast live every tuesday at 12 p.m eastern time on black power 96.3 wbpu fm in st petersburg florida and now available as a podcast as well You can follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. Reparations in Action is the weekly program of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, the organization of white people working under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, organizing in the white community to build the movement for reparations to African people. I want to welcome everyone back to the program. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your co-host Jamie Simpson and I'm very honored uh, to introduce with me here in the studio is my co-host Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity
1: Movement. Hey Uhuru James, good to be here.
0: Good to be here with you again Jesse and we're also honored to uh, introduce our other co-host, chairwoman of the African People Solidarity Committee, Penny
1: Hess. Uhuru comrades. Uhuru. welcome chairwoman Penny.
0: We're thrilled to have you back, uh, joining us live from St. Louis.
1: On episode three of the Return of Reparations in Action.
0: Indeed, and it, it has been a busy few weeks since we've uh, returned to the airways. We want to start, as we always do, by saluting the leadership of Chairman Omalia Echitella, founder and leader of the International African People's Socialist Party, the African Revolution, and as well as our leadership in the African People's Solidarity Committee in the form of Chairwoman Penny Hess. And as well as Black Power 96.3 FM for giving us this hour every Tuesday at noon to bring the message of reparations and solidarity with Black Power, as well as the African Peoples and Education, African Peoples Education and Defense Fund, which defends the human and civil rights of the African community, addressing grave disparities in the areas of economic development, health, and health care faced by the Black community. And uh, as we've been doing. For the past week, and past really three weeks, we want to salute the first plenary of the African People's Socialist Party coming out of the 7th Congress that happened um, this past February 1st through 3rd in St. Petersburg, 2020. And we want to make it clear that when we speak here, we are aware we are white people in a, on a black Uh, community radio station specifically addressing white people that might be listening to Black Power 96, white people that might be watching on Facebook, white people listening uh, on podcast to let you know that there is a role for you in this movement. You can become part of the African liberation struggle within the white community if you unite with reparations to African people as a revolutionary demand. And this is something that we do under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party. So we want to introduce the, the main topics that we're going to be discussing today through the lens of African internationalism. So Jesse, let's dive right into this. All right, let's do it. Reparations and the question of marijuana, in particular states where marijuana is legalized in one form or another. (sighs) Today for our discussion about reparations in the headlines, we want to start by reviewing this and a few recent articles on this subject of marijuana decriminalization or legalization and the war on drugs, which is an important phrase. How it has been used as a part of the colonial war or counterinsurgency against the African community. The issue is starting to come up a lot, including in the presidential elections. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, a Democratic presidential candidate from South Africa. Uh, Bend, Indiana was questioned by a moderator during the debate in New Hampshire on Monday night about the increase in arrests of African people specifically for marijuana possession that took place in South Bend during the time that Buttigieg was
1: mayor. Oh, for real. So if I, if I may jump in, uh, Jamie, yeah. So, um, I'm glad we, we can talk about this issue and I'm looking forward to summing this up with you and chairwoman Penny Hess here. Um, because this whole issue of, marijuana legalization is kind of one of those issues that's often sort of put in there as one of the bullet points on a typical liberal progressive quote-unquote uh platform Mm -hmm. so we want to really get behind that and see what it's really what's really going on and you know what it really means in terms of the question of reparations to African people so I wanted to just share uh, an excerpt from an article on the Buttigieg campaign and then um, a few other things, and then we can kind of open it up for discussion. So, okay, this is an article from February 10th, 2020, in The Intercept. And obviously, um, anybody who wants to jump in at any point to comment on this, please feel free to do so. So, Pete Buttigieg, for anyone who hasn't been following the uh, absurd Democratic presidential primary, is a 37-year-old former mayor from South Bend, Indiana, who is starting to climb in the polls? He was the uh, pr- he was the pr- pr- pronounced uh, winner of the Iowa caucus, partially thanks to a an app a shadow app that was uh, funded partially by his campaign. That's another story. So during the eighth Democratic presidential debate on Friday in Manchester, New Hampshire, Pete Buttigieg obfuscated his administration's record on arresting local black residents for marijuana possession. The issue was raised by Lindsay Davis, an ABC correspondent and debate moderator who asked the former South Bend Indiana mayor to explain the increase under his police department of arrests of black people for marijuana possession. Under your leadership as mayor, quote, "A black resident in South Bend, Indiana was four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than a white resident. I just wanted to point out that that is also true throughout the country that mm-hmm. an African is four to- at least four times more likely to be arrested than a white person for marijuana possession. Uh, That racial disparity is higher than the rest of the state. In fact, it's higher than the rest of the nation. And that disparity was increased in South Bend after you took office, said the moderator to Buttigieg. When talking about the problems on national terms, you called it evidence of systemic racism. You were mayor for eight years. So weren't you, in fact, the head of the system? How do you explain the increase in black arrests under your leadership? So Buttigieg's response... Buttigieg responded by saying that the statistics didn't address um, Davis's question and avoided the racial disparity on pot arrests. He said, Well, the reality is, on my watch, drug arrests in South Indiana or South Bend, Indiana, were lower than the national average, specifically to marijuana, lower than in Indiana. There is no question that systemic racism has penetrated every level of our system. We've got to confront the fact that there is no escaping how this is part of all of our policies. So the moderator was like, well, you didn't really answer my question. So finally, he he basically resorted to the classic white nationalist uh, justification for the arrest and criminalization of African people, which is that it's necessary to arrest you know, increase the arrest of Africans on marijuana charges because it's part of cracking down on crime and gangs and things of that nature. So, um, so this kind of opens up a discussion about the whole issue of marijuana and drugs in general Mm -hmm. and the decriminalization of marijuana, or in some cases, even legalizing recreational marijuana and how that has not translated in any situation to, any form of justice, social economic justice for African people. Quite the opposite. It
0: seems to have just deepened this two-tier system that they have uh, in, in law enforcement or the, you know, quote-unquote justice system towards African people. So that there is, as Chairman Penny Hess has always said, um, African people go to prison for things that we in the white community would never go to prison for. And now it's simply a legal situation. When in states that have legalized marijuana, we see the police cracking down like they did in South Bend. Apparently, there's a similar trend going on in Miami, Dade County, Florida, where uh, African people uh, selling marijuana are being arrested at a much higher rate than previously. So um, this this is highly pro- problematic. And when we have this justification that it's about guns, right, it's about the violence, it is such a dishonest argument. It's such a, as you said, white nationalist argument. That that's why the police are in the African community, uh, you know, cracking skulls, essentially, brutalizing and terrorizing the community like they did to Marquise Golden right here in St. Petersburg.
1: So Chairman Penny, um, what are your thoughts? I know this is something the Uhuru movement has raised historically and put forward the understanding that the war on drugs is actually a war against African people.
2: Uhuru, yes, that has certainly been the position of the African People's Socialist Party over all the years, that... Um, the slogan, um, the White House is the crack house and Uncle Sam is the pusher man. And, and as we know, that's verified in fact, in, in um, historic reality that, that the U.S. government forced and placed, consciously placed drugs, especially crack cocaine, into the African community, especially in the 1980s. And that was a part of counterinsurgency. Against the ability of the African community to to rise up and fight for their political and economic power in their own hands and their liberation. and I think that you know we can see that that drugs, whatever they are, are used as recreational um, enjoyment for for recreational enjoyment in the white community mm-hmm. but are used as, uh, a tool of a war against the African community for Black people, and right. that you know, right now with the opioid mm. epidemic in the white community, every every day I am hearing programs on NPR and other kinds of places about how this epidemic is is. Um, just devastating the white community, although they don't often say it that way. And that so that now we are to have empathy for uh, white drug addicts who, um, you know, and, and see this as an illness, as something that's wrong with with people, as opposed to the work of criminals, which even marijuana is used to criminalize the African community. And that is basically, uh, right now, opioids are being decriminalized Mm. by this government because white people can go into a police station or all of these states are having a special um, police section that helps white people. They're good good police and they help white people get... um, to get treatment and other kinds of resources that they might need, that's never happened. And I, in the African community, and of course, having lived in Oakland under the leadership of the party for many years, at the height of the um, counterinsurgency in so many ways. I mean, you saw every single day SWAT teams, mm. highly militarized police forces um helicopters flying over i mean at times over the uhuru house you couldn't even speak in the uhuru house they would be flying low over the uhuru house for hours wow and you know you you just saw this um this incredible assault it is still going on it is still very clear so basically marijuana is legal for white people it mm-hmm. is still not legal for africans right. mm-hmm. and yeah you know, it's, it's used in a, in a myriad of ways to, um, again, to attack that community. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, marijuana is another issue where reparations are owed to African yes. people.
0: Yeah. This, this is an economic issue, too. I think so often it gets phrased as a moral issue or something, but that's clearly not how the state is treating it. Marijuana mm-hmm. represents an economy. And it, the un- unfortunately, because of the colonial attacks on the African community, as has often been summed up, they've been, the, the community has been forced into this quote-unquote black market or underground economy. Illegal economy. A, Ill, yeah. An illegal economy. Mm-hmm. And that's not something
1: somebody chooses. That's something somebody gets forced into because of colonial conditions. I, exactly. I, I appreciate the point that you made, um, Penny, that for white people drugs are used as a form of recreation, and for the African community it's a tool of the counterinsurgency. And you know, just the point that Chairman Amalia Shatella and the Ahru movement has been exposing for years, um, you know, specifically addressing the way that the U.S. government and the CIA has been involved in trafficking drugs into the United States. And it's something that, you know, happened around the world as well mm-hmm. in terms of the the uh, so-called Golden Triangle. And, you know, the even going back to the opium wars and things like that. But that, you know, Chairman Amalia Shatella had given speeches at San Jose University um, exposing the role of the CIA in the the so-called Iran Contra scandal, where they were trafficking cocaine into the United States, into African communities, turning it into crack and using that as a way to salt the earth and as a form of of uh, chemical and biological warfare against African people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was shortly after that that Gary Webb, who was a writer in San Jose for the San San Jose Mercury News, I believe was the name of it, um, who published a series of articles that basically corroborated so much of what Chairman Amali had said, yet, you know, Gary Webb claimed that he heard that somewhere, but he couldn't remember where he heard it. Somebody had said that, you know, the U.S. was involved in crack cocaine, but he couldn't remember where he heard it. Obviously it was the Uhuru movement. And even more recently, there have been um, statements – there was a statement – I can't remember the guy's name, but it was a a, a former Nixon administration official who was quoted openly uh, admitting that the U.S. government put heroin mm-hmm. in the black community to assault the black community as part of the counterinsurgency against the black revolution. And the way he said it was, we couldn't make it illegal to be black, so we put heroin in there and, and criminalized uh, you know the behavior uh, of of African people, and you know criminalize the life, the very existence of African people. So um, wow. he admitted that, and I mean, even without admitting that, it's so obvious and so clear, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that I totally unite. Is just another part of the case for reparations. Mm-hmm. And on that, I wanted to kind of see open up another another aspect of this. If we could talk about the the question of reparations as it is being fought for in the context of the legalized marijuana trade, if you will. Um, for example, there was an article in The Guardian um, about the marijuana industry in Los Angeles. And, Jamie, maybe you want to speak a little bit about that.
0: Well, my understanding is that in um, in California, marijuana is not just decrim- decriminalized, but that it's legal. It's uh, It's legal... For recreational use, it's legal for medical use, mm-hmm. and that there was an expectation that there would be some kind of compensation for the African community um, through this. Okay, so there there was an article in the Guardian that says a Los in February third of this year that says a Los Angeles government program set up to provide cannabis licenses to people harmed by the war on drugs has been play has been plagued by delays, scandal, and bureaucratic blunders costing some intended beneficiaries hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses. Black entrepreneurs and activists across Los Angeles told The Guardian that the city's embattled social equity program has left aspiring business owners on on an indefinite waiting list, causing potentially irreparable damage to their families, finances, and preventing them from opening marijuana shops they have been planning for years fewer than 20 of the 100 businesses on track to receive a license through the program appear to be black owned, according to estimates from advocates who say the community most disproportionately targeted by marijuana arrests is again facing discrimination. And even some of those applicants now face precarious futures. Meanwhile, the existing LA industry is thriving with many white business owners at the helm.
1: So pretty clear cut there. And I think that one point that seems pretty obvious to me from from reading about news like that is that there's absolutely nothing automatically progressive about legalizing marijuana. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't not only does it not translate into a release of African prisoners like that's not part of the demand. The call for legalization of marijuana does not mean that African people who have been unjustly incarcerated on marijuana charges would be released. But not only that, it doesn't translate into any genuine economic development for the African community. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's still a colonial economy, whether it's an illegal colonial economy or a legal colonial economy. It's, it's just another cash crop in parasitic capitalism. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems to function to protect the white
0: user, right? To protect the white consumer of cannabis Um, while African people continue to languish. And so often we see things that may be in our short-term interests in the white community as progressive, when in fact they're just another part of, as I understand this, this looks to be just another facet of gentrification. Mm, When you have a a two-tiered legal system coming in for a controlled substance that was once part of an illegal economy that African people relied on, that seems like part and parcel of the entire plan to remove African people from where they are. This seems like part of the war. I mean, it, and it, which just brings us back to what they have always called this, right? Since Nancy Reagan, the war on drugs. Oh. So let's let's have let's really open this up with a, a roundtable discussion on, on the effects of this for the African community and what stance we should take as white people. There there was an, another article that recently talked about a city councilwoman. In Evanston, Illinois, who got a reparations bill passed out by the city council to form a reparations committee that would oversee a process by which tax revenue from marijuana sales are allocated towards reparations projects for the black community. This sounds very familiar. The reparations on the municipal level influenced, in large part, the model created by the African People's Socialist Party and Director Achille's campaign for city council. So, Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the African People's Socialist Party's vanguard status in, in setting the standard for electoral politics and revolutionary candidates.
1: Uhuru. Uhuru. Chairman Penny, anything you wanted to chime in
3: on that?
2: I mean, I, I think it's really clear that, you know, this is, of course, I think it was an interesting proposition, first of all, and apparently it is happening. Right. Yeah. I mm-hmm. haven't. I haven't really followed up on reading they're, about it. They're
1: forming a committee now, a reparations committee in Evanston, through city council.
2: You know, but to of course the question that always, and and of course it's really really clear that it's influenced mm-hmm. by the parties, um, the parties' campaigns, and the campaign of of um, director Achille Anai. E, and I think that the I think. You know, the, the question is, will it really benefit the African community? Will it be something that goes to the African working class and not something that stabilizes and, and increases the income of a level of, of the petty bourgeoisie? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it'll be really, you know, the whole class question is in there. But I think that it is... I think it is very interesting that this kind of thing is happening and there's another one too Mm -hmm. and i I don't remember where but there's another there's other cities where uh african um alder people or council people are calling for reparations from the marijuana sales Mm -hmm. so i think it's kind of becoming a thing and um i think it's an important thing that's happening because this whole question of reparations has to you know is is starting to be raised everywhere they look right. and this is what the party intended yeah. and it's not that every place is going to be you know reparations as a revolutionary demand but every place they look African people are saying we want the return of our resources and just that it would be you know from the sales and taxes of legalized marijuana when African people have paid the price
3: right, exactly. more than
2: any other population for that.
3: Mm-hmm. Um
2: I think it's I think it's a good thing. And it shows the influence of this movement.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I I agree and I, I think it shows the influence of the movement in two major ways that I think you just um uh touched on. One is the fact that like prior to the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru movement, Chairman Amalia Shetela, Director Akile Anai's uh, um, city council campaign, you know, all of these things, It was you would never hear people talking about reparations being figured out on a municipal level, right. being something that's discussed on city council, mm-hmm. being something that there would be a bill passed to try to implement. So m- taking reparations out of this thing that's like, Oh, it's merely just a payout that the U.S. government would have to pay. But something that's more ongoing um, on a municipal level and a local level is obviously the influence of the movement, as well as the fact that they're talking about the reason why they keep saying that they want like these different city council persons are saying there should be reparations from the marijuana tax revenue is because Mm -hmm. of a growing acknowledgement, also clearly influenced by the party that the whole drug thing was an attack against the African community. Mm -hmm. And you see that sentiment a lot that they're like, okay, African people are the ones who have had to suffer, you know, the most from the whole, uh, the illegal status of marijuana. You know, I mean, white people, white people, I know personally white people that have been arrested for, Marijuana and have gone home later that night. Yep. You know, I mean, it's not the same. Even when it was completely illegal, mm-hmm. um, an African was much more likely to be thrown be- thrown behind bars on marijuana possession than a white person. And as as this movement has always pointed out, drug you know white people are the biggest drug users and sellers in this country by far, yeah. and not just in terms of numbers, but percentage wise, by far mm-hmm. are the so you know. African people have been the ones to have to bear the brunt and pay the price, as you said, Penny. So I think the way that the Uhuru movement has always said reparations is not just for slavery, for chattel slavery. Reparations is for the ongoing oppression of African people that has continued up until five minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that influence is seen in the fact that the reparations that's being called for is for the ongoing oppression and criminalization of African people, including through the so-called war on drugs.
0: Right. It seems to be a recognition that that the prisons are packed with mm-hmm. African people and that they can't uh, simply decriminalize what they've been using as a pretense to throw African people in these dungeons, in these concentration camps that we call prisons, without giving uh, some kind of at least lip service or program of uh, compensation for colonialism, whether they're calling it that or not. Um, so I don't know to what extent this is going to actually address the colonial conditions, but I, I unite with what's been being put out that the more people are connecting reparations to any issue, the more they're starting to get to the, the heart of the question. And I, I do think it's interesting that it was uh, director Akile Canyon or Director Akile Anai of the African People's Socialist Party, whose campaign demanded reparations that would come from the police department, from mm-hmm. the colonial police that have been terrorizing the African community. Uh, who built this here or, are or planning on building this huge new complex across the street from their old. Oh, it's, uh, built. it's built now. Yeah. So, um, you know, that happened. The uh, the state sort of uh, at least on the cover won that one mm-hmm. and they have their new police station. So perhaps the marijuana is a softer target than the police department. But it's it's one more step. Um, into the white population's understanding that we owe reparations. We can't just go out and enjoy our lifestyles, enjoy the things that uh, parasitic capitalism brings us on the pedestal without confronting this colonial hell that the rest of the world
1: is experiencing. For real. Well, we are actually going to take a quick musical break. Um, We're almost at the halfway point here. So, are we we not ready to do that? Okay, well, we do want to shout out um, people who are tuning in. Kristen... Paula, Nina, Guevara, um, Nasir Alamine from Kuwait, and everybody else who is listening, people who are listening here in St. Petersburg, live on the air, Black Power 96.3 FM. And um, anyone who might be listening later on on our podcast, please follow us on Mm uhrusolidarity.podbean.com.
3: And
0: and tell us what you think. Do you believe that if marijuana is going to be criminalized, should African people in prisons be released? Mm Mm-hmm. That I I don't hear that being yes. yes. <laughs> African people must be freed from these colonial prisons. The prison industry itself owes reparations. Exactly, exactly. And and we're going to be getting into that um, in further shows in in much depth.
1: All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
0: To reparations in action the second half of the show uh, and for anyone who's just tuned in this is the official show of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement and the African People's Solidarity Committee <coughs> organizations of mostly white people working for reparations and solidarity with the African uh, community struggle for liberation under the leadership of the African working-class led Uhuru movement and we want to take questions from our viewers on Facebook and the rest and uh so if you have those questions, go ahead and send them in. Jesse, is there a link that they need to know about?
1: Um well if you're watching on Reparations in Action weekly radio show on Facebook, you can just leave a comment and that would be the best way. If you're listening on, on the radio, um you could email info at if you have any questions. Fantastic. So, yeah. 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 So, so we wanted to talk about this um this other issue. I think you know we've been discussing here with Penny and Jamie. Um, the issue of marijuana uh, legalization and how the marijuana industry, whether as an illegal drug economy or as a legal drug economy, um, is just another industry of parasitic capitalism mm-hmm. built on the oppression, exploitation of African people. Another sub industry of parasitic capitalism is the academic industry revolving yeah. around helping white people unlearn their quote unlearn our quote unquote racism and this is something that uh the uhuru solidarity movement apsc have talked about before so i wanted to bring up another headline uh this was an article from a couple days ago white women pay 2500 dollars for an anti-racist dinner freshly made pasta is drying on the wooden banisters lining the hall of a beautiful home in denver colorado Fox hunting photos decorate the walls in a room full of books. A fire is burning and downstairs a group of liberal white women have gathered around a long wooden table to admit how racist they are. Quote, recently I have been driving around seeing a black person and having an assumption they are up to no good, says one of these white liberal women, Allison Goobser. Immediately after, I am like, that's no good. This is a human just doing their thing. Why do I think that? Welcome to Race to Dinner, where a white woman volunteers to host a dinner in her home for seven other white women, often strangers, perhaps acquaintances. Each dinner costs $2,500, which can be covered by a generous host or divided among guests. A frank discussion is led by Regina Jackson, and Sarah Rao who are African and Indian American quote unquote respectively uh, race to dinner was started to challenge liberal white women to accept their racism however subconscious if you did this in the conference room they'd leave Rao says but wealthy white women have never been taught have been taught never to leave the dinner table okay so Penny if you received an invitation to a a race to dinner what would go through your mind
2: (laughs) that Obviously, that it's a, it's about the question is about colonialism and you know how ridiculous to spend twenty five hundred dollars unless a per person unless it was actually going to uh, as reparations to projects like the Black Power Blueprint
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, that. You know, this is about a comfortable dinner, mm-hmm. examining the thoughts of white women. And when everybody leaves that table, African people are still going to be gunned down, mm-hmm. locked up in mass imprisonment, um, impoverished. Uh, every, every other possible you know uh, condition that African people face, not one thing will have changed. And that um, it's really clear that the conditions of African people are conditions of colonialism, just like any oppressed and colonized people, person anywhere in the world. Mm. Um, so, you know, it change, it's ridiculous. But um, I was trying to think how we could do a fundraiser like that and have charge $2,500 per person yeah. and have it go to the Black Power Blueprint. If we had 10 people, that would be $25,000. So. <laughs>
1: I know, reparations dinner.
2: Yeah, let's have a reparations dinner. And like we can really go into the fact that, well, we can't guarantee that we can change your thoughts, but we can put your actions and your resources into the hands of the African liberation movement and the African working class that is concretely changing the world. Wow. I mean, that could be powerful. And I would be up to uh, doing something like that. I think it could be a really powerful event if we did it as an anti-colonial reparations event.
1: That would be awesome. I would definitely go to that. I'd even eat the drying pasta (laughs)
0: on the wood panel, as it was described in the article. I know, (laughs) in our
2: fox hunting pictures. I don't know
0: if we can come up with all that. Fire um, cracking in the background. I guess it would be a different state than the one we're in. Uh, you know, it's, it's so disturbing hearing about these uh, events where the entire focus is on the ideas inside white people's heads. Yeah. And, and I noticed there's this, what the conclusion is, is how they can get the white women to challenge and then accept their racism.
1: Just so, accept it.
0: Just accept You're it. Racist. Right. <laughs> it's, it's so blatantly just a salve for yeah. their conscience doesn't do anything material, like Chairwoman Penny was saying, for the African community. And that's Mm -hmm. what I really appreciate about the approach of the African People's Socialist Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like the the chairman kept saying, don't judge us on what we say, judge us by what we do. It it creates a kind of organization that puts institutions on the ground, that solves problems materially. And um, you can just see that throughout the history of the organization.
2: I mean, just to, to say more on this article, you know, it says it seems unlikely that Anyone would voluntarily go to a dinner party in which they'd ask be asked by one, what what was a racist thing you did recently by two women of color before appetizers are served? But Jackson and Rao have hardly been able to take a break since they started these dinners in the spring of 2019. So far, 15 dinners have been held in cities across the U.S. The, woman who, the women who sign up for these dinners are not... Who most would see as, quote, racist. They are well-read and well-meaning. What? They are mostly Democrats. Some have adopted black children. Oh, Many wow. have partners who are people of color. Some have been doing work towards inclusivity and diversity for decades, but they acknowledge that they also have unchecked biases. They are there because they know they're part of the problem and want to be part of the solution, as host Jess Campbell Swanson says before dinner starts. So, you know, it's I mean, that is, you know, insane that, of course, being well read and well meaning is um, something that makes you less racist but in the meantime you are uh, you are stealing african children and adopting them as white people grow you know and, you know have forcing african children to grow up in a white condition which is is not only uh, actually listed as one of the actions of genocide under international law removing children from the group but it's also something that incredibly endangers African children who are forced to um, to live in the environment of the white colonizer uh, both through trauma that they can experience just in school and among the friends as well as even being targeted by the police in these white neighborhoods you know which happens all the time and um, you know I know cases of where that that's happening and I you know, that it's just, it's really just a, some kind of self-promoting, um, you know, indulgence mm-hmm. that
3: mm-hmm.
2: is to make white people feel better. But again, does nothing to change the conditions whatsoever. And where does, you know, again, you know, all this money goes to either all of them or, you know, does nothing to, to return resources. There's nothing about reparations it's it's absolutely yeah. absurd.
3: And
1: it, yeah, yeah, Just to, yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just gonna say it doesn't even sound educational in terms of what African people face. Like they're not coming to this party to inform the white people in, in this comfortable middle class setting of the hell that African people and other colonized people are going through. It's all about you. It's all about you, white people. What's in your heads? What do you think? What was the last racist thing? And I just I find that putting of white people in the center. For pay really offensive.
1: Well, I, I definitely look forward to the reparations dinners and the anti-colonial dinners. We definitely got to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, because just one last comment on this, and then we do actually have some questions and comments from our wonderful uh, listeners. But um, this quote from Allison Goobser, recently I've been driving around seeing a black person having an assumption that they're up to no good. Immediately after, I'm like, that's no good. This is a human just doing their thing. Why do I think that? <laughs> well... If African people had power, it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. The reason it matters is because you can pick up the phone and call the police and the police will believe anything you say and haul away that African person to prison. Mm-hmm. But if when African people have power, when colonialism is overturned, as Chairman Amalia Shatala says, the ideas in the minds of, of, you know, paranoid white women or whoever else will be
0: inconsequential. Right. So When she's asking herself, why isn't my cell phone working because I don't have any more coltan from the Congo, it will become a bit more of a material question.
1: There you go. Okay, so Kristen Forthin says, good lord, that sounds like some feminist (laughs) gathering liberal middle class nightmare. Well put. Unite. And then um, we have a a question from Nasir Al-Amin. Is it plausible that the relaxation of laws around marijuana are another medium of counterinsurgency to sedate and neutralize. I think so.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. to keep white people in our own little world mm-hmm. that, you know, that we love to ignore and not look at anything that's going on around us. Mm-hmm. And just to live our lives on the pedestal at the expense of everybody else. And I do think that. Yeah. Uh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's it's hard not to see it as part and parcel of like the whole the, the opioid epidemic that white people are going through that they're being coddled through. It's still there. And we heard recently in the news about uh, some of these manufacturers of opiate medications, making it making laws that force the doctors to over prescribe these medications to people. And this is, we're, we're talking about mostly white people that get these medications through their doctors. Mm. So um I know. Yeah, it seems true. like it would be in their I interest. Would just
2: say that you know, in the 1960s, at the height of the African revolution inside the U.S. and also uh, Puerto Rican people, Mexican population, um, indigenous people also were rising up in anti-colonial struggle here. And of course, there were struggles all around the world, as the chairman said. Revolution was the main trend in the world, and. And at the height of that, and I think it was about 1966 or 68, there was the Woodstock Festival where all these really literally millions of of white people went out to the country and just went into this orgy of LSD and marijuana and dancing naked and, you know, just this craziness and even my father back then, who was not progressive in any, any way, said the government did that. <laughs> and It's so right, you know, yeah. that that was something to diffuse white support for, um, you know, white solidarity. With the African Liberation Movement and with the uh, victory of for Vietnamese people, mm-hmm. you know, it was to take white people out of that, and I think that's that's really that's really clear.
1: Yeah, I mean, for example, the Weather Underground, who which was like you know a white left uh, opportunist organization at that time that proclaimed to be in solidarity with the Black Revolution, um, f- broke Timothy Leary out of prison. All these mm-hmm. Africans were. You know, were locked up, and the whole Black Revolution was under counterinsurgent assault. And they used their time and energy to to get Timothy Leary, who was basically like a Harvard-connected CIA asset, mm-hmm. involved in the distribution of LSD in this country and MK Ultra and all of that. Uh, they they you know got him out of prison and sent him to Algeria, where he. Made Eldridge Cleaver and the Black Panther Party there very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that that the whole the whole so called flower power, etc., was was part of the whole counterinsurgency against Black Power yeah. in the nineteen
2: sixties. Yeah, it, and it, I, just just to reiterate that, I think that's really important because it was called Operation Chaos,
3: mm-hmm. which
2: was actually the CIA counterinsurgent attack on the African liberation movement, not just COINTELPRO, which was led by the FBI. And that, and also as part of chaos was operation chaos was the, um, the, I'm sorry, what was it called? Oh, the the MK ultra Ultra. Ultra for mind control, literally for mind control. And there's some really interesting books about it. Poisoner in chief and, and the book chaos that know that lay that out and and really show that but um you know that was that was clearly a part of it to Mm -hmm. um to use drugs as as part of the counterinsurgent attack i mean all every level of it Mm -hmm. is is really clear and timothy leary was literally a cia agent he worked for Mm -hmm. um you know, for the CIA in the mind control and the MK Ultra program. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, you know, all kinds of professors and academics got involved. And then it, you know, came down to the street level for white people and a lot at the Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was something that really introduced LSD into sort of a mass way into the white population.
0: And we think about the iconic moments of the Woodstock Concert. I I believe one of them is uh, you know a white hippie openly smoking a marijuana joint in front of a cop, Mm -hmm. and the cop not caring. And like that was that seemed to be the general thrust of the entire concert politically was hey we can just chill out it's okay we're not going to rebel against the police the colonial police anymore. And there was even a moment when um, Abby Hoffman right got Mm -hmm. on stage and as as white left as Abby Hoffman was attempted to politicize it in some way and winds up getting attacked, if I'm not mistaken, by Pete Townsend of The Who. Hmm. So the, the entire uh, feeling that you get if you watch any of these documentaries from the crowd is they're just they're ready to abandon any form of political resistance. Hmm. They are
1: all about just pleasure in the moment, hedonism, and letting it all hang out. And that was clearly encouraged by the U.S. government and the counterinsurgency. Definitely. Very convenient.
0: I, if, if, if they wanted to, they easily could have had police there. You know, cracking skulls as they would have done had it not been a bunch of white people and a, and a planned event. So, um, I'm I'm getting the impression that, that, that we're agreeing.
1: Yeah, well, the an- <laughs> the answer is definitely a resounding yes to the question from uh, Nazir Alamine. Thank you for that great question.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, just want to encourage anybody else who's watching, send us your questions. We will address them. Um, Chairwoman Penny Hess is for the African People's Solidarity Committee is on with us. Mm-hmm. So. Please send in your questions.
2: Yes. Well, actually, Nasir Alameen has a couple of other questions. One of them, is there a difference between capitalism and parasitic capitalism? Oh, I don't see those. you know, if we study Chairman Omale Shetela and adopt African internationalism and the science of it, the answer to that is is no. There is not just a benign capitalism. There's nothing like that. Uh, That capitalism, as the chairman proves... And, and it is just so brilliant and so clear, as he proves capitalism was born on the assault on Africa that began as early as 1415 and followed rapidly by the, um, the genocide of the indigenous people, the taking of the, the Caribbean and North America, South America the philippines when was you know magellan mm-hmm. was sent out to the philippines from when when was that about 15 something of course the filipino people killed him yep. in existence in a really powerful way um you know the the um just the colonization of of the arab world of the um asians you know china india mm-hmm. this is what transformed Europe from feudalism to capitalism. This is what did it. There's not another non-parasitic capitalism. Capitalism requires this. Requires being born. It's in its DNA that it is born from the from genocide, from you know, from murder, from rape, from plunder, from theft, from occupation, enslavement. Um, destruction of people's civilizations and you know all of the most despicable things as the chairman says that, that human beings can do to other human beings and there's no way that you can you can change that unless you are sitting on the vantage point of white people on the pedestal and, and you have the ability not to see um, what capitalism really is but this is is the truth about it there is no benign capitalism Cap- europe became capitalist on as a result of its assault and enslavement of african people indigenous people and oppressed and colonized peoples around the world and that's that's scientific i mean i i feel that the chairman shows that mm-hmm. absolutely um that it it really you can't how can somebody um, deny that i mean because right, it's yeah. history it's yeah. a recorded historical fact mm-hmm. that europe went from feudalism to capitalism in this process and everything and while the white left and the opportunists of all stripes want to ignore that um you know even things like climate change is used um, they use the date of 1750 the um, beginning of the industrial revolution to gauge when this destruction of the environment, you know, really began, when this, when the carbon, carbon dioxide, the CO two emissions really began in earnest, and when the climate change began, well, that is the height of the colonial domination of the world, and that's what created the industrial revolution. I mean, it's, you know, I just, I just think it, it is so clear. And that's why it has to be destroyed and it has to be destroyed through the leadership of the African working class and the and all of the colonial colonized peoples who make up the pedestal upon which all white people as the colonizer nations sit. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: I, I just want to really uh, unite with what Chairman Penny just said and um, appreciate the question and the clarification that, you know, there is no difference, as you said, between capitalism and parasitic capitalism because capitalism is essentially parasitic. So when Chairman Amalia Shatella says parasitic capitalism, he's not describing a kind of capitalism. Right. He's identifying the essence of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Unlike other instances where you see liberal critics of capitalism putting a modifier before the word capitalism in order to say, well, capitalism is is good in theory, but... I'm against finance capital, or I'm against monopoly capitalism. Crony capitalism. Yeah, Bernie talks about crony capitalism. Mm. Even the Pope said he was against unfettered capitalism. And, you know, so this is not another one of those where we're saying, well, this kind of capitalism is bad. The chairman's actually—he's distilling the essence of capitalism because there's a way that you can talk about capitalism mm-hmm. without getting to the actual heart of what capitalism is, which is that it's a parasite mm-hmm. on the body of humanity. It's—it's it's built on colonialism and slavery and genocide, and mm-hmm. if you don't talk about that, you're not really talking about capitalism as what it really is. Right.
0: You know, one of the clearest
1: statements I've heard from Chairman Mallya
0: Eshtela on this question was when he said he, he critiqued Lenin's statement that imperialism is capitalism grown rotten ripe mm-hmm. right and he said no it's the other way around imperialism mm-hmm. didn't come out of capitalism capitalism was born from imperialism right. that's how a bunch of naked impoverished diseased white people rescue themselves is through sheer pi- piracy just right. heading out in these boats and engaging, as Chairwoman Penny said, in the worst kinds of acts that human beings can engage in—naked right. violence. It, you know, it was born in disrepute, capitalism. So this, this is how we understand it. It was born parasitic, and it continues to be parasitic. It needs the host to feed. It needs colonized people's blood and resources to exist. So there is no benign capitalism. And I really appreciate the analysis from uh, Chairwoman Penny Hess. And from you, Jesse, I think it's so important that we keep this on a materialist basis. Otherwise, we're going to fall down the rabbit hole of fighting racism or something other than colonialism. So we are getting close to that time, comrades, to uh, sum up and wrap up the show. It's been an excellent uh, program. I really appreciate uh, all of our listeners and and both uh, you, Chairwoman Penny Hess, and Chair Jesse Neville for uh, co-hosting the show with
1: me. Appreciate Uh, you, Jamie.
2: Uh, always real?
3: it's an and honor yes
2: uhuru uh, really appreciate both of you it's fantastic it's an honor to be on the show
3: uhuru uh,
0: uhuru uh, thank you uh, again everyone want to remind people about some upcoming events that you don't want to miss out on the first is the uhuru solidarity movement convention that's happening april 18th through 19th in st louis jesse can you give us some details about that
1: Yes, and actually the night before, if people can get in a day early, uh, we're going to be having a reparations dinner. So okay. it, won't, it won't cost you $2,500, <laughs> but um, we are going to be gathering the night before. But April 18th and 19th is the reparations uprising, the USM National Convention to be held in St. Louis, Missouri. And Chairwoman Penny Hess will be speaking at that along with our keynote speaker, Chairman Omali Chatella, founder and leader of the Uhuru Movement. And it's going to be an incredible two day conference that's going to go in much more into depth about what it means for us as white people to be under the leadership of the African Revolution, the African People's Socialist Party, and our particular responsibility to function as an extension of the African Revolution inside of white society, building a mass movement for white reparations to African people, how that is an anti colonial practice an anti-capitalist practice and the way to join the rest of humanity in building a new world without oppression exploitation and war so that's the usm national convention april 18th and 19th 2020 you can register at usm convention 2020.eventbrite.com and we hope to see everybody there in st louis in the uhuru house the headquarters of the black power blueprint that's USM usmconvention Com. Did I get right.
0: that
1: right? Yes. And if that's too much for you to remember, you can just go to uhurusolidarity.org slash convention. Fantastic. And there is also the reparations study group. Thursday nights right here on, well, actually on a different Facebook page, Uhuru Solidarity Movement's Facebook and, and YouTube channel. Jackson Hollingsworth hosts a weekly study of the Spear newspaper, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.
0: Fantastic. Did you give a, a link for that?
1: Uh, Facebook.com slash Uhuru Solidarity and YouTube.com slash Uhuru Solidarity.
0: And another critical study that happens every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time is Omali Taught Me. This is a critical period where you can directly hear Chairman Omali Eshotella summing up the pressing issues of the time, um, going through his most recent book, uh, Vanguard, as well as the political report to the recent plenary. And uh, Jesse, can you give some details on how people can connect with Amali Taught Me studies?
1: It's on Chairman Amalia Ishitela's Facebook page, and it's on the Burning Spear YouTube channel. I highly encourage you to subscribe and follow both of those. And it's an amazing study, as you mentioned, every single Sunday at 8 a.m. And he's uh, currently studying the political report mm-hmm. that he wrote for the plenary. Critical
0: stuff. Don't miss out on it. And tomorrow, tomorrow night, there's going to be a web show on the question of prisons.
1: Yes. Shut down colonial prisons. Reparations now. Akile Anae, the director of Agiprop for the African People's Socialist Party, and Penny Hess, APSC chairwoman, will be speaking on the subject of the colonial prison industry and USM's campaign. To bring down the prison economy and demand reparations from all who have profited from the mass incarceration of African people.
0: And they are many.
1: Seven p.m. tomorrow night on also on Facebook.com slash Uhuru Solidarity and YouTube.com slash Uhuru Solidarity. So I, I want to thank Chairwoman Penny Hess. I want to thank you, Jesse Neville, my co
0: hosts I want to thank our outstanding engineer, Amanda Carlosi. I want to remind everyone to tune in next week for Reparations in Action at 12 noon or here on uhurusolidarity.podbean.com and encourage all of you out there who want to be part of this, you can join the Uhuru Solidarity movement by going to uhurusolidarity.org forward slash join. That's uhurusolidarity.org slash join thanks for tuning in this has been reparations in action we'll talk to you next week
3: oh for